Hello, today is Wednesday, July 3rd, the day before Independence Day. This will be our last daily perspective for the week. I'm Kirk Kovac here from Raleigh. Thomas Mills is on the phone. Thomas, how are you this week? I'm doing great, Kirk. How are you doing? I'm all right. I know we're winding down here for the day, but there was plenty of news to cover. And I think we'll start with a new study from the... um, Cone Health Foundation, which is out of the George Washington University, I believe, and they did a study on Medicaid expansion. And I'll I'll be honest, I I didn't read the first one. They produced this report a few years ago to see what Medicaid expansion would do in North Carolina had it occurred in 2016. Uh, It obviously did not. So now they did it again to say, what would happen if you expand Medicaid in this session? Uh, What are the repercussions over the next few years? So Medicaid expansion in North Carolina, through their estimates, by 2022 would increase the number of people with Medicaid coverage by 634,000, which is not insignificant. Uh, It would involve $11.7 billion in additional federal funding because as Medicaid expansion stands now, the federal government would pay 90% of that. And then it would also give the state 37,000 new jobs, which is a different angle on it than you normally see. I know Medicaid expansion usually revolves around expanding coverage to people who fall in that coverage gap. They make too much to get it, but they don't make enough money to actually afford their own insurance. But when you increase the number of healthcare providers in the state that comes with more jobs. And another interesting thing about that is those jobs aren't only focused in the metropolitan areas. About half of them would go in the six largest counties, but the other half would go across the state. And I think a big issue that's been covered by both sides of the aisle in North Carolina, especially is the issue of rural hospitals closing. And that might be something you could speak to, at least maybe politically, but the idea that even if you have coverage in the rural area, what do you do if a hospital is two hours away? It doesn't really help you that much. So I know we've talked about Medicaid expansion a lot because it's Governor Cooper's premier issue, I think, when he ran as well, but especially in this session. Have you heard anything about its chances or or do you think this is something that might not happen this year? Well... It seems to me that the Republicans are being uh, remarkably stubborn about an issue that, that would clearly help the state and a majority of the citizens. And, and it's almost like they're, they're doing it despite themselves. And, and uh, it's not, it, I think politically it could be bad politics, particularly if you start seeing rural hospitals closed because they've done nothing. I think they've got some bill that would give them a a few million dollars, but not enough to save the hospitals. And they've done almost nothing to to alleviate the burden on people who do fall in that coverage gap. They've done nothing to reduce the cost of of purchasing insurance. And what what they've done is they're, they're, they're hurting North Carolina because of an ideological block about Medicaid expansion, and we're quickly becoming one of the few states that has not done it. And, uh, I, you know, I, I hope that at some point it carries a political price because it, 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 it's good government, it's good policy, it's good for the people of the state. Well, to that point, I believe there have been 
I think every state except for 14 have expanded Medicaid. And I'll tell you one of the striking numbers out of that study I read of the 76 rural hospitals that closed across the nation in the period since Medicaid expansion was uh, announced, 83% were in states that did not expand Medicaid, of which North Carolina is a part. And I think we've had about six hospitals close over that time. And that, I mean, that's significant. I, I think often hospitals in those rural areas are probably some of the best jobs in those areas as well, because you have to be that's pretty right. well trained and, and they have benefits. So it, it is, do you think it, to your point, does it come to a sort of inflection point where you're only blocking it for ideological reasons that don't really make sense for the state? I think someone, uh, what is it? It's like, um, cutting off your nose to spite your foot, something like that. I can't remember the phrase, but you know, it, yeah, right, right. That's what it is. Uh, it's a little ham fisted on my end, but you take the point if it's actually good for the people and there might not be political repercussions for you, you'd think they'd do it. And something that's been interesting to me, obviously all the editorial boards across the state for the newspapers have been proponents of it, but you see yep. op-eds from the business community. It seems like every major facet of North Carolina, you know, top, top to bottom supports Medicaid expansion, except for a few people in the, in the legislature. And, to, to move it forward a little bit, I've heard personally, and I'm sure you have, that the House seems like they're more open to it on both sides, but the North Carolina Senate really seems to be the place where bills go to die. And I know before we hopped on here, I, I compared it a little bit. seems like Phil Berger fills the same role here as Mitch McConnell does in Washington and that it really doesn't matter what the House wants to do because the Senate's not going to do anything unless Phil Berger wants it to happen. Right, and I, th- I think it gets back to the sense of arrogance where they don't feel like there's any political cost for anything they do because they've got gerrymandered majorities in both houses of the Senate, uh, legislature, and they don't, I don't think they really feel like either, either house is at risk. Um, again, I hope at some point there becomes a political price to pay for this, and, and I think until that happens, um, you're probably not going to see a whole lot of movement because I don't think they care what happens. They don't care if people get hurt. What they're more concerned is that there will end up being a time where North Carolina North Carolinians have to pay more for Medicare, Medicaid, and that would come out of their constituents, their their wealthy constituents pocket, not out of the, the poor North Carolinians. So well, I, I wrote that in a column basically today for the Salisbury Post, which I'm not sure if it'll go out since it's the fourth tomorrow, but that's a problem with gerrymandering as well, because I would contend the average voter is pretty moderate, but gerrymandered districts encourage a race to the left or the right, depending on where the district is. So even if you are a Republican, it might not mean you want someone very, very conservative like a Larry Pittman, but because the district's drawn that way, that's what you're going to get. So just because you're you know, the party that benefits from the gerrymander doesn't mean the state benefits as well, even if you know they happen to be on your team. Um, right. But to, well, I would say our state is not. Right, right. Um, so you wrote today about this controversy around Thomas Jefferson, and it actually echoes something I had written briefly a few years ago when I was at Carolina when they had the debate over Silent Sam. Um, but this idea of taking down the Thomas Jefferson celebration because of his uh, 
troubling history. I, I would say the troubling history of most people around 200 years plus ago. But what were you getting at with that article? Well, what happened was the Charlotte, Charlottesville City Council um, decided that they would no longer celebrate Thomas Jefferson's birthday, which had been a citywide holiday uh, for decades. And instead, they're replacing it uh, with a with a day celebrating the Union troops coming into Charlottesville and, and uh, freeing the slaves. And I, I think that's that's a perfectly worthwhile time to celebrate. But I think you can also, <laughs> we shouldn't have to choose. I mean, Thomas Jefferson was clearly a flawed man, particularly based on today's standards. Uh, he was a slaveholder. He had, um, according to the history books, he had six children by a slave named Sally Hemings. And, you know, that, that's, that, that is troubling. At the same time, the guy wrote the defining document of our freedoms. He wrote the Declaration of Independence. Uh, you know, the, the concept of, of, of self-governance and, and the idea that all men are created equal were, were codified in his words. And I, I think we have to start separating what people have done from the, the idea that they're all good or all bad. I think people are inherently complex and often reflections of their time. And I think, I think Jefferson was a clear reflection of uh, the, uh, the, the political establishment, the, the um, economic elite in, 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 that, in the late 1700s where most Southerners had slaves. I mean, what I wrote is that if we're going to start doing away with Jefferson, we got to look at George Washington, we got to look at James Madison, we got to look at uh, James Monroe, and we got to judge them by the fact that they own slaves and ignore everything else they accomplished. And that's not right. History is far more complex than that. You know, and then something I didn't write about, and I started to write about it, was last, about two weeks ago, um, an article came out. They released uh, documents about Martin Luther King um, from... I think they've been under seal for 50 years. And, and, and uh, David Garrow, who's, who's kind of the, a King biographer and, and wrote a three-volume set, um, says there's some really disturbing uh, things about the way he treated women. So, so are we, is the next thing going to be to go after King because of the way he, because of kind of sexist, uh, misogynistic views? You know, we we can't throw our heroes under the bus because they were they were very imperfect people. I think most or a lot of great people also have a lot of great flaws, and it, to some degree, big appetites come with the egos that are necessary to push things forward, and it it, it can leave very complex characters, but it doesn't diminish what they've done. And, and we can't just throw out Jefferson. And, and I think it's so ironic that they did it on the week. I mean, you know, 243 years ago, at the time they voted in, at Monday night, Jefferson was in the midst of writing the Declaration of Independence. It's ironic that they did it this week. Um, and, and I just think that as a country, we've got to get over this, this uh, idea that we're either all good or all bad. And, and, Look, rec racial reconciliation is something that is not going to come easy and it's not going to come quickly. 
it's something we're going to struggle with for a long time. Um, and, and I get that. And, and we need to, we need not to try to bury it or hide it, but we also shouldn't try to bury or hide the accomplishments of people who have benefited this country. And that, that was my point. Well, yeah, really, you can see that in other issues as well. I, I happened upon a tweet yesterday that had the vote on the Defense of Marriage Act, which I think was just 2006. And I believe that passed 84 to 16. You would be surprised to see some of the names of Democrats who voted in favor of the Defense of Marriage Act. And then what was it six years later, the uh, or a few years after that, perhaps the um, the decision in the Supreme Court to allow gay marriage nationwide. I mean, just in the last 15 years, cultural standards have, have changed dramatically and, and it seems to be quickening. Um, and that's just something I think to keep in context for any issue that you look at. Even just a year ago, things were very different in the way we viewed things. So to look 230 years in the past, it's just hard to compare people. It's not apples to apples. It's apples to oranges, maybe. But uh, to move again to the last issue we're going to look at today, there were some fundraising numbers, and I'm sure by the time this even goes out, there will have been more announcements, but some some top issues, or some top line numbers rather, uh, Pete Buttigieg, his presidential campaign, they clocked in at about $24 million, and he's the current front runner in terms of fundraising, even though it hasn't really been reflected in the polling his position, but Joe Biden so far is in second with, I think, $21.5 million. And then in a very close third, Bernie came in at 18 million. And I think he's closer to 20 once you add in some money he moved around from other campaigns. But um, some of the biggest things I thought were interesting from Joe Biden's camp, 95% of his donors were grassroots. That was fewer than $200 donations. And I think his average donation was just under $50 and Bernie was around $18. So is this a dramatic shift in the way that at least Democratic candidates for the presidency are raising money, focusing on small dollar donors? Because what would typically be the establishment candidate in Joe Biden is not taking money from corporations or PACs or fossil fuel. I mean, is, is this a pretty landmark shift in the way these campaigns are running? You know, it's, it, it, is, it is a big shift, and um, Democrats figured out, really, if, if you go back, you can almost see the beginnings of it with Howard Dean's campaign back in 2004, where he raised large, large amounts of low-dollar contributions to fuel a campaign. You know, it, we saw Obama do it and, and build a low-dollar uh, operation, and then Bernie Sanders built a, a, a tremendous low-dollar operation in, in 2016. And what it gave Democrats the ability to do was to trade off the low-dollar donors for the high-dollar corp, the corporate PACs, basically. So I don't know that you're going to see tremendous, uh, you know, well, I mean, <laughs> every year we break break numbers in fundraising, but but. You know, I think you're more substituting money that, that might have come from corporate PACs that are now going to come from low-dollar contributions. It's a good political issue. It's a, it's, it's, a, it's a great way to contrast Republicans who have yet to build that. They're trying to now. They, they you know, they tr- can, uh, have just un- unveiled a, something, of Act Blue-like pro- program to something allow, red. yeah, something red and, and uh, 
to allow their their uh, donors to easily give money to Republicans, and they hope that they're going to catch up on the low dollar uh, speed. I mean, uh, issue. But for now, Democrats own that. They're able to say, "I'm I'm primarily fueled by average citizens, not by corporate uh, big big dollar corporations." That said. Don't think they're going to stop doing their fundraisers. They're still going to continue to raise money from big, big donors. And the other thing that's happened that obscures this a little bit is, I suspect a lot of those PAC dollars are fly, are, are flowing into dark money operations that are going to support them. So right. it, it's a little bit of a bait and switch. While while the campaigns themselves aren't taking the corporate contributions, uh, their affiliated PACs, super PACs, are. And uh, and we won't know because of because of their the nature of them. Um, Citizens United won't we, we won't know who's given to those folks. So yeah, it's it's a little bit of a, a ruse, but at the same time, I think it's it's a pretty good political thing to be able to say that. And and, and the you know the fact that you've got these people raising over twenty million dollars in a quarter uh, ought to give Democrats make them feel pretty good. I mean, you got three candidates who've announced already and we're already at $60 million for a quarter going into democratic coffers. That's no, that's no small feat. And, um, you know, by the time everybody else comes in, I, I would, I would guess that you're probably looking at more than considerably more than $75 million, uh, in three months going to democratic candidates. So, uh, you know, they should be feeling good. So one thing I was going to ask, I I believe President Trump has harnessed some small dollar donors as well. It seems like he, as an individual, draws a lot of support from people across the nation. I believe the number for Trump and the RNC or some other entity was around $100 million. So that seemed like it was another benchmark against which the, the Democratic field would be uh, measured. Do all the Democrats together equal about what Trump plus the Republicans had, had raised? Do you think that number is significant? And now, say, if the Democrats raise about $100 million, does that seem like parity or does it not really matter since it's primary money? You're saying Trump raised $100 million in the quarter? I saw that somewhere, I believe, combined between the Trump, uh, his reelection bid, plus what the RNC has raised. It was somewhere around $100 million. Well, if, they, if they're doing that, they're, you know, that, that, that's, how, that, that's, that's shocking numbers. And, uh, I, you know, I, I, I had... Donald they, Trump topped $100 million. He did for the quarter? I believe so. Well, I might have misread that. I'll have to. I'll double check that. Uh, if he if he if he topped a hundred million dollars for the quarter this far out, I'd say Democrats have got their hands full next time. Here we go. New York Times: Trump and RNC raised one hundred and five million in second quarter. Whew. Yeah, it was a. I mean, it was a huge number when I saw it. So that's why I was thinking um, they're not just resting on their laurels there. That, that's why I feel like the president is a unique uh, fundraiser and that people it's a cult of personality, which is a bad thing, but it's great if you're trying to raise money off of it. So that's my question moving forward. You know, if they don't have a Trump in the future to raise money for them, I feel like it's going to be hard to get those low dollar numbers up 
but I don't know what the average donation was with that. Those could be a lot of big, big dollars, but you know, $5 from a, a poor person, $5 from a rich person is the same. So 105 million, regardless of where you got it still gets spent on, on fundraising and digital advertising and things. So it's not going to be a cakewalk for whoever wins, obviously. No, I mean, they, cl- they clearly got a, you know, a huge operation going. So, well, um, so, that should about do it today. I know it's a slow week um, otherwise. And by the time we reconvene next week to do another, I imagine we'll have some other big numbers coming out. We can compare uh, Kamala Harris would be interesting to see uh, and Elizabeth Warren. I think between those two and the three that have already come out, I think that's probably our top tier right now. Everybody else seems to be languishing in 2% or lower in uh, the polls. So I think those are the front runners as of right now. Right. I think so too. Well, that should about do us for today, Thomas. Have a good rest of your week, and to everybody listening, have a good fourth and a safe weekend. All right, you too.